Welcome to the Insecurity Project podcast. Uh, thanks for listening in. Uh, I've had all kinds of mixed comments about the music. Some love it, some really find it distracting. But guess what? If you find it distracting, there are the first 250 episodes of this podcast with no music. And both my audiobooks have no music. They are very structured pieces of content. The ones with music, it's, it's more long form. It's me just riffing telling a story sharing an experience it's different by design so if you want the specific structure straight to the point all those episodes are evergreen and won't go away they're well they make sense they're well structured i've gone to great lengths to explain things as simply as possible without oversimplifying so um ask send an email to Catherine admin at jamenfraser.com ask for the podcast index which has all the categories and all the topics I've ever covered on the podcast, and then dive into the back catalogue. And that'll solve the music problem for you. So uh, if you're not enjoying it, that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah, there's no point apologising for the music either because I think it's a good idea and this is my opportunity to be creative and expressive and if you like it, you'll listen and if you don't like it, you won't and that's the risk that I run by backing myself but you're not paying for it so I don't owe you anything. Um, So look, yeah, that's the fun of this game is that I'm doubling down on a creative idea that will polarise an audience. Okay, great. So as long as everyone knows that's what's happening, then uh, you can make your choice, love it or hate it, and decide what to do next. I had the great privilege and pleasure of being in Melbourne this weekend to see Jordan Peterson live at Rod Laver Arena. And that was the biggest crowd he'd ever spoken to, 13,000 people. So it was an honour to be among them. And I was surprised at myself. I honestly thought I may have completely lost my mind and run laps around the inside of the auditorium without my shirt on, screaming, Jordan! Love you, Jordan! Jordan! It's me, Jamin! You read my book yet? Um, I think that's probably what'll happen when I go see LeBron play. I don't think I'll be able to hold it together then. I may get escorted from the building. But yeah, look, I didn't. I held it together. I did shed a few tears. I got a bit emotional seeing the great man up on stage. Uh, But no one really saw that. So I was very well behaved, held it all together and enjoyed the evening in a very mild-mannered fashion. I do really admire the man and it was was lovely being in his presence. And I I think he is the smartest man in the world. I think he is a genius. I, I think... Probably the most important thinker and writer of this age. Um, and that is not saying that I think everything he says is right. Don't think he's perfect or complete. But I think he embodies his message. He, The gravitas of his presence is impressive. And he does some wonderful work in the world. So uh, I, I won't go to great lengths to describe what he spoke about but but wanted to speak to uh, a question that someone posed on my socials i i had a there was an opportunity to submit questions to jordan via an online portal and i took a photo of that and put it on my instagram story and asked my friends what should i ask him Uh, and one of my friends wrote why do feminists hate him so much and 
I have. That was a, a, an important question to consider, and I don't like that question. And I, I have experience with that personally. Well, kind of. I'm not a feminist, and I don't hate Jordan, but I know plenty who do. And in in fact, my own lovely daughter, uh, you know, will happily give me a, a TED talk every second night about the male patriarchy and misogyny and uh, and does not like Jordan, thinks thinks his writing is dangerous and destructive. And so I find, you know, on, on one hand, I of course I want to listen to my daughter and understand what she's saying, but I will not be her enemy and I don't agree. So the temptation to just dismiss her thoughts as a young person who doesn't know anything about the world that's a really low quality response and I try and avoid that where all possible but this question again made me consider why is it why is it that feminists do not like Jordan Peterson so I found a really lovely article uh, referencing the work of Kate Mann she's a, a feminist professor of philosophy at Cornwall University and she's written the book uh, the Down Girl, which is the logic of misogyny. And I've, I found she had some some really useful things to say in that article. But I didn't agree with everything she wrote, but I learned a lot. And I think it helped me consider some stuff I, I didn't understand. Uh, so her definition of misogyny was a really important one. Let, let me read what she's written. And I define misogyny as hostility certain women face because they are women in a man's world, rather than the hatred men harbour in their hearts toward all or even most women. Uh, That was important for me to hear that uh, feminists who are upset at Jordan are are not, well, if we're representing the thinking of feminists by the work of Kate, they're not saying that all men hate women. That's not the claim because that's easy to dismiss and it doesn't feel to be true. But they are raising a good point, and that is, it is a man's world. And I, I don't think I could argue with that. And I don't know what it's like to be a woman. And I don't know what it's like to face um, uh, injustice because of my sex and limited opportunity because of my sex and to be already on the back foot or behind just because of the sex that I was born. I don't know what that is. So that's an important thing to consider. Uh, she also goes on and is asked by whoever, uh, Sean Illing, who's, who's interviewing her in this article, uh, and she was asked around, um, you know, what do you find most interesting or challenging in Peterson's ideas, or what has perplexed you the most about how his ideas have been received? Kate says, honestly, I think the fact he's not being called to account for saying some really eyebrow eyebrow-raising, authoritarian-sounding, and even cruel things in his book. Uh, One example she cites is uh, when Peterson responded in his capacity as a psychologist to a particular client. According to Peterson, the client announced, I think I've been raped. He wrote that he was immediately... Sorry, he wrote that he immediately thought that alcohol was involved. And here is a direct quote from Jordan's book. How else to understand, I think. But that wasn't the end of the story. She added extra detail five times. The first sentence was awful enough, but the second produced something unfathomable. Five times? What could that possibly mean? 
My client told me that she would go to a bar and have a few drinks. Someone would start to talk with her. She would end up at his place or her place with him. The evening would proceed inevitably to its sexual climax. The next day, she would wake up uncertain about what happened, uncertain about her motives, uncertain about his motives, and uncertain about the world. But her summary was, I think I've been raped. Miss S, we'll call her, was vague to the point of non-existence. She was a ghost of a person. She dressed, however, like a professional. She knew how to present herself for first appearances. Miss S knew nothing about herself. She knew nothing about other individuals. She knew nothing about the world. She was a movie played out of focus, and she was desperately waiting for a story about herself to make it all make sense. Back to Kate in her article. Kate says, I'd raise an alternative explanation. Maybe she was raped, five times as she stated, and then was effectively undermined or even gaslit by her therapist. To be clear, I'm not saying that is what happened. I can't possibly know on the basis of what Peterson writes here, but I'd certainly like to know more, and I'm surprised Peterson has not yet been asked about these and similar passages in which he comes across as highly contemptuous of female clients. That's a confronting passage to read, and I I can relate. It... There are times where I say things that, if taken out of context, could seem cruel or callous or arrogant or short-sighted or part of the problem or complete, completely inappropriate to miss the point. Um, you know, when I, when I got asked by an elderly, well, you know, mid to late 50s, early, early 60s perhaps, a client, if I could coach her even though she was in pain and I said, no, I, you're too old. Um, if someone had heard me say that directly without context, there's no other way of understanding that other than that is a cruel and callous say to another human being that does not understand her pain, that there is no compassion in that. And yet, six weeks later when she called me back and said, Jamin, I know you don't work with people like me and I'm too old, but you must. And, and in that moment, I know she's ready. And then we embark on an extraordinary experience. Or when I have a client pull out of our process after four weeks of a, of a six-month process, citing the fact that I was walking my dog while on, on our first and second coaching calls and claiming that I hadn't shown up with enough uh, intention, that I'd been distracted or not wholehearted about my coaching because I was walking my dog. And, and my response to him was, uh, I, I have enough skill in my little finger to solve your pain and your problem right now. The lack is not with me. I could be asleep and coach you and that would be enough. That is not the limiting factor. If you heard me say that out of context, the only way of thinking about that is that I am a terrible human being, arrogant, conceited, no compassion. I The title of a book that I've written, the latest book says How to Change People That You Love. <laughs> the the uh, awards night, the the business awards, Australian Business Book Awards, were were held uh, a few nights ago, and 
I was a finalist in that awards um, out of 27 in my category in the top four books, but didn't win. And and a big reason that I didn't, the, the judges were torn by that title. Some of them just really did not like it. Why would a person say that? How could that be good? And so I read that from Jordan and and I think what a beautiful way of thinking about that dilemma Um, What a redemptive and empowering opportunity that woman will now have to think about her world more precisely and find a way out. And then I also know that uh, in a man's world, to be taken advantage of is not fair. And it happens and it's cruel and unkind and not to be seen to have compassion for her plight feels callous. And yet I know in my own being that um, there is, I, have, I have no callousness. I am filled with compassion. I moved, I moved so empathetically for the plight of those who suffer. In fact, my whole life has been built around ending unnecessary suffering. But the approach is not palatable to many. It doesn't make sense to call people out to be direct. It doesn't seem congruent with compassion and yet it is and I and I watch Jordan do that and I'm grateful for his presence and his the precision with which he works his wife Tammy uh, introduced him to the stage and told uh, some of her own experiences of <clears throat> it was lovely being in the auditorium um getting to see Tammy, his wife. Uh, She's been invisible. I've I've not seen or heard anything of her, only the references that he's made occasionally to his wife of many years, but to have Tammy on the stage uh, telling some stories from her own life uh, and unpacking a little of Rule 11 in, in Beyond Order, the second book. Do not allow yourself to become resentful, deceitful or arrogant. And then, and then she says, uh, that Jordan is about to come up on stage and she's not sure at all about what he will talk about. In fact, she's sure that he doesn't even know what he's what he will talk about and that he's sitting in the front row meditating now around what, what he will bring. I loved hearing that about him and uh, that's certainly how I think about the opportunity to speak, to over-prepare, is to drop out of flow and to operate in confidence, which is cruel to the world because it's the combination of high skill, medium risk, or, or low risk. And and it, it's horrible to the world because it confuses them. They think it's magic, but it's not magic. There's nothing magic about confidence. Magic is high risk, high skill. So to be in the room, to be confident of your content, and then to speak to the room as they are, it takes a lot of courage and risky and it doesn't always go well but I just so appreciated that Jordan was willing to do that for us and he spoke about his his final rule which is uh, be grateful in spite of your suffering and those two rules tie together do not become resentful arrogant bitter and be grateful in spite of your suffering Um, because he, he spoke about the idea that life is malevolent you know that there is evil in the world there are bad things that happen both arbitrary bad things you know so there are natural disasters that no one has caused directly uh, no one has asked for there are tragedies that just happen 
um, to great people. A child being born with a birth defect, a congenitive disorder, a um, you know a bone cancer that they didn't is not a reflection of any choices they could have possibly made. And to watch that child suffer, uh, that's some malevolence that the human being encounters. And then there's the intentional malevolence of of evil that is planned and um, premeditated and deliberately inflicted on the world and so Jordan says there are an awful amount of opportunities to be arrogant resentful and bitter life will give you an abundance of those opportunities every day it is hard thing being a human being and that is that is said with the fact that in today's world it's the easiest time in the history of the universe all the data would say it is actually the best time to be alive. The life expectancy, the access to education, water, food, uh, housing has never been a more prosperous, safe time in the history of the world. It certainly does not look like that. If you have no understanding of history, there's no way anyone would say that. You turn on your TV and you'll see disaster, calamity, a problem. There will be a thousand things to be worried about before breakfast. Uh, it looks like there is far more bad than there is good. It's a dangerous world to live in that you could be taken out at any time. That's not objectively true. Um, and yet, even though it is the safest, most prosperous time in the history of the human species, it is still full of malevolence and there are an awful, there is an awful lot of suffering. And, and that is that is a given and, and life is not fair. And and to come to terms with the fact that life is not fair is a very, very important thing because if you don't, you will become arrogant, bitter, resentful. If, if you point to the fact as, as a woman that it is not fair that you are born a woman and it is not and you can play that and it is true, objectively true, but the moment you play that card, the moment you allow that to be your rationale for living the, mo- the moment you show up reacting to that injustice then you will lose the game because you will become bitter you will become resentful you will become arrogant it will you will lose your soul and just because men don't face the injustice and men as a as a generality that you know it seems like such a big word and gen- generalizing is always so dangerous but you know, working with the idea that it is a man's world, so therefore men experience less injustice sexually. But there's no way you could build a case to say men still don't experience injustice. And and a person's injustice is their own injustice without needing it to be compared to someone else. Every day uh, we each have opportunities to experience things that aren't fair. And they are not fair. Objectively, they are not fair. They are not what we deserve. And there is another opportunity to become arrogant, resentful, and bitter. But if you do, you die. I just appreciated Jordan's take on this because he said the alternative is to be to be grateful in the midst of your suffering. And great gratitude not as some kind of false optimism, some naivety, uh, some lying that it's better than it is but the gratitude for being itself gratitude for the, the moments of joy the opportunity to grow the wonder of moments of life and love in the midst of difficulty 
the, the act of gratitude is, is extraordinary courage. And to hear gratitude described in those terms was profound and beautiful. And I, I love that Jordan says that. And I've been moved by that. And I, I think that is a great piece to take from him and, and a really beautiful way of speaking to the why is it that feminists hate him. I think they've missed the point. I don't think everything he says is tr- is is perfectly true. But that that idea is, uh, I'm not sure how you could argue with that. That, yeah, you can find reasons to become resentful and bitter. But if you do, you lose. And we each have our own experience of that. We each have our own opportunity of that. I, f- I find Time Magazine such a, an important read for me right now as an example of that it's a horrible magazine to read uh, it, it really is it's such a mixture of great pain and and great pleasure when I read that every time a, a new magazine and I, I love the actual magazine I do have a digital subscription but I, I get the the physical copy as well and carry it with me wherever I go there are very well written well researched uh, you know, rounded presentations of significant problems the world is facing right now. Um, just the latest edition talks about, uh, you, you know, the energy crisis the world is is experiencing now, and particularly in Europe and America. It's a it's an American publication, so um, Northern Hemisphere. The article says, you think this winter was, was bad? It'll be nothing compared to next winter. And here's why. Here are all the, the economic global conditions that will make this energy crisis pale into insignificance for next. The, the people will suffer. <laughs> and I read that and I go, that's just so horrible. Though I'm so saddened by that. It terrifies me. It makes me worry. It keeps me up at night. Um, but it's so important to be across the fact that life is hard for many people. And and then the next article will be about, well, this particular edition was about the, the best inventions in the world in 2022 across all industries. And my goodness, there are some extraordinary human beings doing wonderful, wonderful work in spite of the opportunity to be bitter, resentful, fearful, afraid, um, and to shut it down and give up because things are too hard. There are people who are aiming up, who are trying to be part of the solution rather than the problem um, from wherever they find themselves. And so every time I open Time Magazine, it is a mixture of pain and hope. And uh, I want to take my place in that struggle as well, to be open to the difficulties of the world and to level up, to bring whatever I can to improve the situation yeah, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of Jordan Peterson and it was a really lovely take on suffering and the options that we face in spite of injustice and difficulty and malevolence. And uh, I, it was just wonderful to be in the room. And I, I flew home the next day and I got to encounter some said suffering in my family when I got back and some malevolence delivered in the form of a swinging scooter um, Elliot loves the skate park and often comes home with various bruises and bashes, but uh, this time had really done a number on his big toe and he was in a lot of pain. It was 
a, you know, a, a big black toenail and swollen big toe and it, it really smashed the scooter into it. And I thought, well, look, I, this, is a, this is a job for a dad because uh, we've got to get a hole through that nail so we can relieve the pl- pressure. And Elliot thought that was the most ridiculous and preposterous thing he'd ever heard and that I was the worst person in the world to have suggested it. And so a few YouTube videos later and uh, some diagrams on the whiteboard and some explanations around the fact that thumbnail, uh, toenails don't have nerve endings in it and that the pain of not relieving the pressure would pale under insignificance for any pain involved in releasing the pressure and it was all going to be worth it and it was a long presentation and he agreed to allow me to uh, be a surgeon and I tried a few approaches I tried a, a drill bit with my fingers spinning it but I just couldn't get any purchase on the nail and uh, so then we went to plan B which was to heat up a paper clip and, and burn our way through his nail and that I watched a couple of YouTube videos and that looked like it was a cinch so I couldn't see any problems and I was really excited about the fact that I was going to alleviate some pain for him and so went about um, melting a hole through his nail and it was a lot harder than I thought and I was still very excited about relieving the pressure and so perhaps got a little carried away on the last and final attempt to break through and I'm sorry to say but I pushed a burning hot bit of metal through his nail into the bed underneath and and my son he almost passed out uh he just and then when he regained any sense he just didn't know what to do with himself he was in that much pain and then when the pain settled down and and there was some relief thankfully (laughs) uh, a lot of blood came out but then then he suffered for the next hour or so just thinking about the horror of what i'd done to him just replaying the fact that a hot piece of metal (laughs) went through his toenail into the soft bed underneath and that just made him feel sick to his stomach and me also by the way I, I didn't I didn't feel good about myself and was very glad this morning when he uh, felt no pain in his toe and and the pressure had been reduced and all was going to be okay but whew, boy oh boy father of the year um i <laughs> I, I got a good question sent in a I mean, I get people asking questions all the time, and uh, I think sometimes it's useful to, but with permission, to share a question I've been given with a larger audience. Because I'm sure if one person's asking it, then then many people are asking it. So let me read this question, and I want to use it as a way of talking about the three levels of awareness. Here's the question. See if you can find any of yourself in this question. Uh, In the school playground, you win if you get the last word in. You are the alpha dog and no one will mess with you or be able to say nasty things. So the strategy is to prevent people from saying nasty things or trying to bring you down. I'm having trouble assigning that to a need because I am greatly affected by people's comments. Others' opinions have a big effect on me. I think panic attacks, anxiety, etc. come from this. Freezing in conversations. Is that my value and worth tied up with what others think of me? Or is it simply my own rules on being a good human, such as Jesus turns the other cheek, so I must, therefore I can't say what I want or I'm not holy? 
and I must treat all women with respect, allowing them to treat me however they want. This has come out of years of putting up with my sister-in-law and mother's bullshit, and I can fight back, sure, but there must be a better way because you can't win against them, and it will go on and on and on. I go to stand up for myself and I'm literally shaking and then get afraid I'll panic and pass out. There's an internal confidence I am missing and I want to find it. How do I just make the switch to owning my value? I'm having trouble seeing what I need to. Thank you. So there's a bit in this. Let's uh, unpack it together. So the idea of, first of all, looking at why are there bullies? How does being a bully work? Is a bully just a terrible person? What justification have they got for it? How could you understand a, a bully? And if you've suffered at the hands of a bully, it's often an incredibly difficult thing to understand. Why would someone treat me so poorly? What would cause them to behave in a way that brings so much suffering repeatedly to me? So so firstly, I think you don't want to find a justification. It's You don't want to let them off the hook. You do not want to be empathetic to the plight of a bully in a way that would cause you to see the world through their lens. So that's a big deal to be willing to step back and see it archetypally or or kind of see the general pattern around how bullying works. But if you want to get free, you're going to need some awareness. You're going to need to see how things work. So... uh, so you may have heard me say this before, but I'll say it again because it, it is unequivocally a way out of the mess of unawareness. Of unawareness, is that a word? Of, of lack of awareness, of your stuckness. So every behavior is an attempt to meet some or all of your needs and protect some or all of your fears. Every behavior meets needs, protect fears. So six core needs uh Certainty, variety, significance, love, contribution, and growth. Thank you again, Big Tony, if you're listening. Tony Robbins, finest contribution, those six core needs. Don't let anyone tell you there's a hierarchy. That's not how they work. All needs are being met at all times. You need all of them. And from a very young age, you'll work out how to meet your needs. Uh, So it doesn't matter if they're resourceful or unresourceful. If you don't have a high-quality way to meet your needs, your unconscious will serve you by still filling your cup, still finding a way to give you certainty, variety, significance, love. So being a bully meets the needs for certainty and significance primarily. So certainty is about the need for control, for structure, for the known. So if you become top dog, well, then you, you remove so much uncertainty from your world. You know that you're the top you're the one in control you get to do what you want you're not at the mercy of someone more powerful or stronger so to climb to the top of a social hierarchy and to dominate a space gives you great levels of personal certainty please hear me i'm not saying that's a a resourceful way to meet the need but that is if you can separate behavior from intention that's entirely what bullying behavior is about now it's important to consider, if you're willing to be empathetic for the plight of a bully, that in order to choose that strategy, then there will be a fear driving that as well. And so in some younger time, some weaker time, no doubt they will have been taken advantage of. They will have their weakness used against them. Someone will have dominated them. 
perhaps a parent has been particularly unloving or an older sibling. Perhaps they've been made to feel insignificant and weak and worthless and that is such a destructive feeling to their own soul that they, in moments of great shame and embarrassment for being belittled, they have vowed that they will never experience that again. And because it makes them feel like they must be worthless and they are convinced that's what's true. And so they develop a strategy never to feel insignificant again. I will be the best. I'll be the strongest. I'll be the biggest. I'll be the one with power. I'll be the one with control. And so in that way, I will feel like I matter. I will have power. I will not have power taken from me. And I'll feel certain. I'll be in control. So that's the strategy of a bully. Now, the second question is, is my worth tied up with what others think? Well, sure, that's that's your behavior. Remember, all behavior is an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. So when you were young and you were going through the crisis of wondering if you had value and worth and you were embarrassed or upset or hurt by what was going on in your world, the strategy you developed to meet your needs and protect your fears was to please other people, to have them like you, to get them to approve of you, to get them to say nice things for you. So you made a commitment to a strategy that would meet your needs and protect your fears because you were afraid you had no value and if people didn't like you, then you would be found out and, and that fear of not being good enough would be confirmed. So uh, in order to, to change this strategy, some objectivity is useful and to, to see what's going on. Um, so uh, I say this to people frequently around, especially if you find yourself um, in a victim cycle. So you're not the bully in the story, you're the victim and you're being treated poorly by others and they're hurting you all the time. Uh, hurtfulness is caused by neediness. The only people that have the power to hurt you are those you need something from. Very important. So that means you've only got three options, either... Option one, keep needing it. Yeah, I do need you to like me. Yeah, I do need you to behave better around me. Yeah, I do need you to respect me. Yeah, I do need you to accept me and to love me and to affirm me. I do need that from you. That is true and I cannot survive without that. And you are the only person who can give it to me. So it's true I need that. Oh, don't let me stop you playing that card. But if that's true, if that's that's your option, that's how you see the world, then you must get better at playing the game their way. You've got to level up. You gotta perform more. You gotta <laughs> adapt. You you've gotta impress them. You've got to increase what you're doing so that they will give you more of what you need if that's what you want to do. Option one, keep needing it and play the game better. Option two, stop needing it. I don't need you to like me. I don't care about what you think about me. I don't need your approval or your acceptance. I don't need anything from you. Um, sure, you can play that strategy, but then you'll suffocate and starve because that strategy just forgets the simple fact that, yeah, sure, you, you might not need it from that person, but you still do need significance and certainty and love and safety. you got to get it from somewhere. So to just all of a sudden cut off your fuel supply in an act of courage and assertiveness and defiance, well done, but what are you going to do tomorrow? when that person is no longer, you've cut them off. Um, 
So that's actually not a believable plan, although that's often what's suggested and it makes the most sense. Just stop worrying what others think. Just stop needing it. So option one, that is a plan, right? That, that is a plan. You could just double down on eating it and, and just learn better skills to please people. Uh, option two, that's not an option really at all when you think about it. So so now we're option one, option two is not going to work, or option three. Option three is, okay, so clearly you do need significance and love and certainty and safety and variety. and You do need that. That's a human need. You won't survive without it. So, okay, if you don't want to get it from them, then you have to go, you're going to have to find a better fuel source. And that's the adult upgrade is to realize that Okay, being an adult is to be self-sufficient. You worked at how to dress yourself and feed yourself and finance yourself. So, okay, you could also work at how to validate yourself, how to approve of yourself, how to encourage yourself, how to recognize yourself and see yourself, validate your own existence. You could do that. Now, you might go, but I don't know how to do that. Sure, you don't. But like anything you don't know how to do, but you have a compelling reason to learn, well, you work it out. And and when you realize this is a less to more transaction and for those listening along, that's not less to more as in a man's name, that is less to more, i.e. we're always motivated by seeking the best deal we have available. We're trying to do the best we can, we're trying to get peace and comfort for ourselves. Um, the example I use with clients all the time is if I had $5 in, in one of my left hand and $100 in my right hand and I said, choose which note you want. Um, You'd instantly want to choose the 100, but then the more you thought about that, and this is a a psychological test, you can try this out with friends, the longer a a person thinks about that option, the more likely they are to choose the $5 because no one's giving away free $100 notes. Clearly, there must be a trap or a trick or it's going to cost you down the line. You can't actually have $100. And so the $5 is less likely to cost you, so you rationalize that 5 is somehow a better deal than 100 But if I do whatever necessary to convince you that you could have the 100 without any strings attached. You realize it is a better deal, a genuinely better deal. Well, then the moment you see it for what it is, it's not even a choice. Of course, you take the 100 instantly. You don't have to trick yourself, convince yourself, manipulate yourself. Um, you just do what's best. So the moment you understand that meeting your needs internally is a better deal, it's a better offer than asking the world to do it for you. The people who always let you down and are not doing a good job of validating you and even when they do, it's so fleeting and then you need to get more and you constantly doubt they mean it anyway or you always resent the fact you have to sell out or compromise to get what you need from them anyway. When you work out that you can actually source these needs yourself, you can be your own certainty, you can validate your own existence, you can love yourself, you can see who you are and... uh, then the moment you see that that's a, an upgrade, you don't have to trick yourself, force yourself, manipulate yourself. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, that that feels good, actually. I could get better at this. And every day you're increasing your ability to do that and therefore dramatically increasing the deal. <laughs> even on day one, it's a better deal. Even when you're brand new at it, it's still a better deal than outsourcing it. So um, how do you make the switch? Well, yeah, option three, you hang on to the need and just discover that that's the central part of being an adult and and it's to tell the truth about your suffering it's to go eh, it is a horrible way to live to be externally referenced even though it might be hard or unfamiliar what are you going to do you're going to keep living in this trap um, 
Um, you can if you want, but to tell the truth about the cost is a central part of all change. So uh, a, a framework that I think is really useful in, in this work and it relates to this question is just thinking about the three levels of awareness. So um, level one is blindness or naivety and that is you can't see where you are. You, you just don't really know what's true. You're, li- you're existing, you don't think... You don't reflect. There's no self-awareness required to be where you are. You just occupy a space. You don't even know where that space is. You can't see the dysfunction. You can't see the progress. You can't see the pain. You can't see the desire. It's a it's a very shut down and small place to live, but it is possible to live there. And you can live there willfully, some kind of willful blindness or naivety. You can live there in a way that feels moral, so a fake positivity or optimism that is part of your strategy to have others like you. Um, but it's it, there's no self-awareness, none. You cannot see whether because you mean to not see or you just can't see. Um, so then the next step when you start to see where you are, so one is blindness, two is pain. To see where you are is not ever pretty. The first time you see where you are is a shock and all that happens is you suffer. It's a very painful thing to know the truth about your experience. And to see your strategy. So, for instance, to see that, oh my goodness, I have developed a strategy to meet my needs by selling out what I want or I think is right to become whoever everyone else wants me to be so that I can be liked. To tell the truth around that, it's not going to feel good. I promise you that's a horrible thing to see, even embarrassing. You can be discouraged and disappointed. You can feel stupid that that's true. So to see where you are, not fun, not nice, not enjoyable, full of pain. Um, So that often tricks people around the value of self-awareness because they just go to level two, which is just to see where you are. And they go, well, that's horrible. So why would I want to see where I am? I'll go back to the blindness, thank you. And now it'll be willful blindness. Now I will choose not to see. I don't want to see ever again. Too painful. Um, but that's just missing missing the next step. So great, you've got to see where you are first. But the next level is choice, and that is true awareness. And and to get to true awareness requires you not just to see why, not to see where you are, but to understand why you are where you are. So to say, oh look at this, I'm a people pleaser. Oh, bloody hell, that's a terrible thing to be, a people pleaser. What a weak way to position yourself in life. You know, what a low-quality strategy. It's true, though, I can't pretend it's not where I am and I'm afraid of others and I get triggered and I go into panic attacks every time I try and confront people because I've always played this card and I've taught myself to be weak and insignificant and then others have more power and I get bullied. Uh, yeah, okay, not a nice thing to see, but... But why? Why are you a people pleaser? Oh, I don't know. I just always am. It's how my mum raised me. It's how I got taught. No, no, that's not why you're a people pleaser. You're a people pleaser because you chose a strategy to meet your needs and protect your fears. That's why. There was a transaction. There was a transaction from the very beginning. 
we only do what works. So it worked for you to be a people pleaser in the very beginning. As a child, you looked around at the options available to you. You thought, I probably couldn't ever be the bully. That's not going to work for me. I, I can't stomach that. So I'll be the nice person instead. All to compensate for what you thought was wrong with you. You realized you couldn't just be you. You had some painful experience where you just being you wasn't enough. It got you hurt. You lost and you reflected on that and made sense of that in a way that was negative and personal. You got embarrassed by that experience and assumed that, okay, there's a problem with me, therefore I can never be just me again. It's me plus something or me minus something. And then in your childish wisdom, you developed a strategy. And that strategy worked. That's why you repeated it. And that strategy is still working. That's why you're still repeating it. If you can see why, that is your way out. That is the reason anyone would want to do self-awareness. It's it's the same with the, with the vulnerability stuff that Brené Brown has made popular. Um, this is exactly the drama with the dilemma with the vulnerability movement is that it only moves to stage two in the awareness, which is pain, and then you get celebrated for your pain, celebrated for your dysfunction, and then you become more dysfunctional because you tie your identity to what's wrong with you, to your yeah I am a I am a recovering people pleaser. That's who I am. Yeah yeah I, I am an empath. That's just me. You know what I mean? Like yeah I'm an introvert. Like I'm just a really shy person. I I've been abused. I'm an I'm a a victim. That's who I am. Like, okay, so you can see where you are. Okay, yeah, but why are you there? It's not who you are. It's not in- inherent. It's just a strategy to meet your needs and protect your fears. And you made that strategy when you were a kid. So you, you could make a better strategy. I promise you, you really could with not much intelligence or effort at all. But that's keep going in your awareness. Keep going. Ask why. Make sure there's some logic when you examine who you've become and the the persona you've built for yourself. Be it a, a martyr or a people pleaser or a victim or a negative person or a critical person or a shy person or a sad person or a depressed person or whatever you've found yourself in that's not good. Go all the way back and see, yeah, but why did I choose that in the first place? And and you must find a logic that makes sense because you didn't do it just because you did. You didn't do it just because it's what you saw. You didn't do it because, I don't know, you just did. You did it for a reason, and that reason was to meet your needs and protect your fears. That is the logic. And to understand that logic all the way back to the beginning is your freedom. That then gives you choice because you understand the choices you made in the beginning. Then you step out of the illusion of no choice and you make better choices. And the moment you can see the choices you made, you're inherently good doing the best you know how anyway. And so you naturally make better choices and you're on your way into a new experience of being you. And that's fun. So let's leave it there for now. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I'll talk to you again next week.